Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. All right, we are in Matthew 22, if you haven't already turned there. Thanks, David, for reading that. And we are uh, talking about a wedding, so pretty exciting. Uh, we are not as cool as Movement Church one time did a story on, on a wedding, and they literally had someone come up and they married someone in their service. And I was like, that would have been so cool to just be like, anybody want to get married right now? <clears throat> it's not like the reality show, Married at First Sight, but it could be. So, <laughs> could be. Uh, but we're in Matthew 22. If you don't have a Bible, we have some in the back you can steal. We'd love for you to keep that. And uh, we're going to be ch- we're going to be taking a nice continual stroll through Matthew. We're in part six called the Storm, and the reason why we call it the Storm is because we are actually spending have spent and spending the next few months in the last week of Jesus' life. So a quarter, if not more, of the four gospel accounts of Jesus, his life, death, ministry, um, burial, resurrection, <clears throat> is centered around this week of his of his life. So we are technically uh, in Tuesday. So if you look at this timeline. Um, you can see this is like all the events. I know it's small. I'm not, you don't want to read all of it. But this is the timeline of the last week of Jesus' life we call Holy Week. And so we have seen him arrive on a Sunday, which we call Palm Sunday or Triumphant Sunday. And that's whenever he enters into the East Gate of Jerusalem. Everybody, everybody has different opinions of him, and it causes this major storm. Because Rome is in control of Jerusalem, but Jerusalem has swelled up about eight to ten times its size because of the Passover, the biggest festival of the year. So they're nervous. Jesus comes in this, and there we go, and we zoomed in, and um, then he cleanses the temple. He, like, flips over the table, and he's like, my, you know, my father's house is not a, a den of robbers. And then he, we, he constantly goes back out and back into the temple. He stays on, like, a hill on the side of the city. And then he comes back, and he has these debates. And so that's where we are right now. You go to the third one, is the temple debates. And so what's happening is there's these different... Um, stories and parables and conflicts, point of conflicts, with the religious leaders and Jesus. Because Jesus is on their, on their stomping grounds. He's going into the temple, and he's on the temple courts, which is like the outside sort of areas of the temple. And he's gathering crowds, and he's, he, well, he was doing miraculous healings, but uh, now he's, he's engaging with them in debates. And it's not like he's like wanting to debate them. They're, they are mad because he's on their territory. And so it starts off with the, this argument of, like, by who authority, right? Like, do you, do you have these words? Like, who, by who, whose authority are you able to do this, right? We own this place. Like, this is, like, for us, this is our stomping grounds. Why are you here doing this? And Jesus responds, and, he, and he, ca- he causes him to have this sort of provocative conversation with them in front of all these crowds. So as we listen to the parable today, and we have the last few weeks, we have to remember that Jesus is talking to these religious leaders, but everybody else in the crowd is listening to all of, these, all of this debate, if you will. So there's a pressure that is, that is heightened with Jesus versus the religious leaders. Now, the best way to describe these three parables, if you look in your Bible, there's kind of three in a row. The best way that I like to describe it um, is if anybody a fan of a, a ban- good banana split? Anybody like a good banana split? Okay. So some places are going to short you. They're going to give you two scoops of ice cream in two flavors. Okay. But a good banana split has three. Okay. We all know that, right? We can all agree. Yes. And typically, it's vanilla, chocolate, 
And honestly, if they got it, strawberry. Okay, a lot of times they'll do vanilla with strawberry topping or whatever. But you know how you can pick your toppings and all that. This is like a banana split. All three parables, they're all ice cream. They, all, they are telling the same thing. But they all have different components and flavors and focuses on what Jesus is trying to convey. And when you eat the whole thing together, it's this wonderful, awesome goodness, right? So there you go. I just made you hungry for banana split at 9.30 a.m. But that is, that is what's going on here. And so this parable, like the two preceded, though, they're focusing on uh, alluding to the fact that the people who most think they are close with God are actually the farthest. And there will be a new set of people that will be able to be closest to God, that will be into the kingdom of heaven. And so that's what these three parables are all about. They just have different little uh, toppings and flavors, if you will, in the banana split. So let's dive in verse 1, chapter 22. I'm just going to go verse by verse here because David already read the whole story for us. Verse 1, Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, The kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. Now immediately anybody listening, it was a common rabbinic tradition um, that if your main character or whatever was a king, it was always assumed to be God. So this is a pretty common start of stories. You would always observe God as king. So people are already kind of latching on, okay, the king is probably God, right, as they're listening. And, uh, and not only is he just king, but... He's, he's, you'll, you'll see in the story, as we read, that he's, he's a legitimate king. I mean, he's got an army that can crush cities and decimate them. So he's really wealthy, really big deal, and he has a wedding banquet. Now, weddings back then make our weddings today look pathetic. I know you can't believe that because you're like, well, we spend so much money on weddings. Um, so I'm not necessarily talking about the price necessarily, more so the duration. I mean, a wedding, like wedding feast and banquet and party and all that would last several days. Can you imagine that? You know, it's kind of like if you've been to a destination wedding. You might be there for one day, but you're typically like, let's ride this whole weekend out, right? Like, let's enjoy the beach and the pool and all that. And so everybody hangs out for several days. It's sort of like that. You would go and you'd have the wedding ceremony and you would have this awesome feast. But then there was like a, just a continual sort of like lingering of partying and all that kind of stuff. It was a big deal. And if you were coming in from out of town, you're like, you just, you're ready to go like the whole week, which is crazy. I don't know about you, but I like, I love weddings. I love weddings. But I could not imagine being like, all right, day four, let's get back up and party some more. Like, I would be done. I don't know about you. Or you've been to like 10 weddings this year, and you're like, please, God, can we just mash them all together and have one wedding, one mega wedding, right? But that's, that's the culture. So he's inviting, uh, we see these people to this wedding for his son. So in verse 3 and 4, he sent his slaves to summon those who had been invited to the banquet, but they would not come. Again, he sent other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Look, the feast I have prepared for you is ready. My oxen and fattened cattle have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. Now, what's interesting in this culture is, uh, you know, invitations and things like that were a little different than your typical postal service or even email, right? Uh, Because that's trendier now, right? Send email uh, wedding invitations. But back then, you'd have someone go to that person's, uh, where they reside, at their home, or their farm, or whatever, and you would invite them. And at that point, it would almost be like they would accept it or deny it, if that makes sense, right away. So when you, would, when you would go and you would invite them, they would know right away, I'm committing to come to this. And when the slave would come back to the master, they're like checking them down, right? They're like, all right, they, they're t- they're, they decide oxen. You know, there was no veggie option back then. So they're like, all right, oxen for them, right? And they would assume they were coming. So they've already essentially said, I'm going to be there. And what has happening is the wedding is, is occurring. And this is a parable, right? So remind you, like, 
some of these pieces are not super realistic to see the way the world works. Like, it almost sounds like, okay, now the auction's ready. Like, now we can have the wedding. That's what it sounds like. But it's, it's not really the point. The point is the wedding is time. The people who have said they'd be there are now that he's sending out his slaves to go tell those people, hey, it's ready. It's time to come. Let's go celebrate this wedding. If we remember, I've talked about this use of slaves before. These are not like, this is a pretty high honor as a servant. Um, so when we say slave, what we really mean in this context is servant because these are some high-end trustworthy people that are going and, and saying, hey, it's, the wedding's ready. Let's, let's go party. But we see that um, they're not coming. And uh, as if it wasn't already enticing enough, I mean, this is a big wedding. This is a rich, this is a rich guy. I mean, an oxen, a fattened cattle. And this is, a, this is a royal wedding, if you will. I mean, I don't know if you've been to, like, a super bougie, like, black tux wedding or something, but, I mean, it's, it's high-end. Like, you're, you're, talking, you're talking, like, the probably most lavish wedding you've ever been to or could imagine. He's like, I got it all ready, right? And they don't want to show up. And so this is a reminder uh, of what Jesus is doing is he's drawing out the, 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 the nation of Israel as this chosen nation invited by God to be in relationship with him. And when I've talked about the Old Testament and how the laws and everything tie in together, that was their way of, of agreeing to this relationship, that they would, uh, if they had sin, they would be able to atone for it and make them right before God. And so these, these people don't want to go. And here's the reasons why in verse 5 and 6, they're kind of silly. It says, but they were indifferent and went away. One to his farm, another to his business. The rest seized his slaves and instantly mistreated them and killed them. So some is just like dumb reasons. I've got too much work. I don't want to go. Or ants, eh, whatever. I don't really care. Oh, I forgot I RSVP'd. I don't, I don't really want to go. And then there's the other extreme, which, which is where I said this is where the parable kind of comes into play of pointing to the violence that had been done to the king's servants. In the last parable last week, uh, the vineyard, that was the similar thing that occurred. The owner of the vineyard sent his servants to collect the fruit, and they killed all his servants, which was ridiculous, and we all knew was foolish, and that the, king, or the owner was going to do something about it. But in the same way, they kill his slaves, which, like I said, is a little bit ridiculous, because I don't know why you'd kill someone for reminding you that you're going to a wedding. <laughs> you know, It would be a little aggressive, but... They do that, and Jesus is drawing out this kind of provocative nature of Israel and how they've failed. So in verse 7, for right reason, the king is furious, it says. He is furious, and he sent his soldiers, and they put those murderers to death and set their city on fire. And then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but the ones who had been invited were not worthy. Now, there's this really subversive theme that Jesus plays at in this chapter chapter before, the next few chapters, that a lot of people have a hard time seeing. The temple and everything in it will be destroyed in 35 to 40 years from when Jesus is saying this, which is pretty soon. I mean, he didn't live incredibly long at this time, no modern medicine, but uh, people in their lifetimes were going to experience Rome, sieging them for five months, destroying almost the entire city and killing almost everyone. I mean, we're talking 500,000, some scholars say potentially 1.1 million people are killed in the, the Jewish-Roman, I don't, I don't know if it's called war or what you would call it, but it's just destroyed. And so there are literally people that this will happen to, and Jesus is alluding to this all, all the time. He's alluding to this temple that the Jewish people had, had actually, instead of using it as a vessel to let God's presence be present, they use it as an idol, like the temple itself is the idol. And he, he constantly talks about tearing down this idol because he is coming as the new temple, this walking temple, right? And in this moment, this is what he's actually getting at. Because if you read these verses, 
there's a couple little clues that get us to think about, okay, he's not really like, like he's drawing something deeper out of this parable. And the main reason why is because it says he sent soldiers and he put them to death and he set their city on fire. Now think about it, their city, that, the only way that would make sense is if every person that he invited that wasn't in his own city was all in the same city. So it's like, well, I got friends in my city and then all my other friends are in this one city. Right? It wouldn't really make any sense. Right? It would, it would probably be all over the place, different farms, different places. So Jesus is drawing the wedding guests, and then he's drawing a deeper um, reality of this city, which is Jerusalem, will be set on fire, which it actually will be set on fire, literally set on fire 35, 40 years later. Right? So he's alluding to this reality of, of the temple in Jerusalem being of just utmost destruction. That's why he says set their city on fire. Now, And we also know that it's not like in that moment the king is like, pause the wedding, put the oxen in the microwave, like we're going to go kill all these guys, and then we'll come back and have the wedding. He probably, he probably attacks them later, right? Like it wouldn't make any sense for him to be like, they didn't show up, pause all the festivities, right? We're going to go kill everyone, then we'll come back, and then we'll have the wedding, right? No, they probably had the wedding, and then they would kill them later. But Jesus is referring to this reality that this city is not going to be here. What's crazy is as I was doing some historical research, and a lot of this comes from the mouth of Josephus, who was a first century Jewish historian uh, who recorded a lot of the Roman accounts and the Jewish culture at this time, writes about the falling of Jerusalem. And he talks about how literally some of the, the rabbis and the, the higher level Jewish people were enslaved, up to about 100,000 of them were enslaved by Rome. Some of them were sent back to Rome and almost, almost most of them that were able of fighting age were gladiators and died gladiators. And I just think it's crazy to think about the people that Jesus is talking to in this moment could potentially 30 years later be dying in a gladiator ring in Rome. Isn't that insane? Like, they're thinking, no, God, like, Yahweh is here. This temple will stand forever. Like, there's no way God is going to come with the Messiah and Rome is going to get destroyed, which eventually we know historically Rome does get destroyed, right? They were too greedy. But, I mean, just think about that. There are people in that very moment that are, like, going to be either murdered tragically, in that city a few decades later, or just sent off to be a gladiator. I mean, it's, it's, it's wild. And Jesus knows all this. And that's why there's a, a section where he weeps for this beloved city. He's a Jewish person. This city and its beauty, and it is just decimated. And even today I've talked about the historical um, power of the, the, the West Wall, of the temple that's still sort of up, and the Jewish people pray and lay hands on it three times a day praying that God would restore the temple again, right? So there's this just deep sadness still of lament of, this, of the temple. So that's this provocative thing that Jesus laces through a lot of his teachings as he's starting to die because he is replacing their temple and becoming the true walking temple. And that is what he's getting at with this weird, like, you're like, why did he just like, go kill these people, right? That's what he's getting at. So in verse 11, let's get back to the wedding. The king is going to have this wedding. He's like, I'm marrying my son. My son's getting married. I'm going to have a party. Let's do it. And this is what he does in verse 11. The king came in to see, uh, or sorry, did I skip ahead? Verse, sorry, verse 9 and 10. Sorry. So go into the main streets, this is of his city, and invite everyone you find to the wedding banquet. The slaves went out into the streets, gathered all they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. I mean, this is literally like running around throwing flyers everywhere. Like, there's a wedding. Anybody want to go? I mean, like, desperate. Like, let's get some people in here. Right? It's like whenever, like, the, um, they, like, have those, uh, like, parties, like, New Year's Eve parties and stuff. They, like, they basically just, like, hey, we need people here to make it look cool. So, like, can you just party in here, right here? 
with the cameras. It's like literally just gathering everyone. Like, let's just get this, this these table full. The food's ready. Let's fill up the table. Otherwise, it's, it's a, a dishonor to the sun if no one's there for their wedding, right? So this is, I think, just right away a reminder for us as we just see both bad and good being at this wedding. We've talked a little bit about how the disciples were this really ragtag group. They were from all different social and economic classes. They were, um, they were, they were all different um, ages and family upbringings. I mean, it was a tense group of people. Imagine this wedding. I mean, this is like the the most intense like group, different groups of people. And what I am reminded about, and I think is a good reminder for us, is that that is still the church today. Because the symbolism of this is talking about the church, right? This idea of a wedding and a banquet and a community of people. And I, I thought it was so funny thinking about, like, you know, do we celebrate that as a value of a church? That we are a messy, uh, diverse, um, in terms of, like, just people who are really, like, following Jesus well and people who are really struggling. Like, that we celebrate that, right? It's easy to get up on the stage up here and uh, celebrate, like, so-and-so, you know, found freedom in this area of their life, and they've really been walking with Jesus in this way, and it's so great. We're like, yes. But we never have someone come and be like, so-and-so is still a mess, and they've been here for several years, and honestly, people still have a really hard time hanging out with them. Like, (laughs) praise God, right? Like, no, we don't do that. You know, or like, we, like, make up a name, like, you know, like, this person, like, we talk about them, but we don't, you know, like, we don't celebrate that. But actually, that's a win. If, if, if we have people, if you have people in your, your circle of community of, whether it's at church or just your, 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 your community of believers in your life, that you can't stand, you are being more like Jesus than you probably ever have in that moment. Yeah. And it's easy for us to say, well, I'm going to give them six months. We don't say that in our head, but we, you know, we treat them like that. Like, all right, well, they broke this boundary. I gave them the answers. They're not following the answers. I'll just start to sort of ignore their texts or like, well, maybe they'll be a better fit over here. You know, like we, you know, we play that game. We justify us removing them from our life because they don't really fit very well in our life. And I think about this oftentimes, you know, we're a young church, so nobody's been here longer than three years because we weren't a thing then. And the half of that was COVID. So who even knows if people were here, right? But it, like, there's this beauty in, in this idea of, of God is drawing in these people, and he's putting them at the same table, and he's celebrating with them. Yeah. And if we don't have people like that, then we're, we, are, we are in danger of looking around and realizing that we are not a church. We are a group of comfortable, like, just safe people who want ourselves. And I mean, it's easy for us to do that in our social economic classes. It's easy for us to do that locationally. It's easy for us to do that just... Just even interest-based, right? Like, oh, I, I like football, and so I hang out with all the guys. We talk fantasy football, and if you don't like football, well, you're going to just not have anywhere to butt into the conversation, right? Or you name it. It might not be football. It might be something else, right? But there's this beautiful picture that we see of the tension of the people around you is very much uh, the spiritual maturity as you gauge a church. And there is no way for me as a pastor, for us as a church, in our year-end statement, when I talk to other pastors, like, there's no way to brag about that. Oh, guys, our church is honoring Jesus. We got a bunch of people I can't stand. It's awesome, right? We don't brag about that because it's just like, because that's the messiness of church. That's the beauty of this little part. That, and there's several instances that we see, but this is just another one of both bad and good are filled into the wedding. Now, when the king came in, in verse 11, to see the wedding guests, he saw a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He's not naked, but he's not wearing wedding clothes. 
And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? <laughs> Which is, I love how he calls him friend. He's like, maybe there's a good reason why you're not in the right clothes. And the man has nothing to say. Then the king said to his attendants, tie him up, hand and foot, throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Seems a little extreme, right? Let's be honest. I, I think like the main thought that everybody has reading this last part, because you're like, oh, it's so cool. God invited all these people to his wedding. Wow, what a generous, gracious God. And then you're like, how can this loving God who invited them to his own wedding then kick him out of the wedding into hell, right? It's kind of what it's implying is hell, right? For not doing the right thing. Anybody else? I feel like that's a little intense. You're like, yo, it, like he invited them, so like it's... It's not fair, right? And you're not wrong. It's, it's wild. It's wild. Uh, so let's figure it out. Are you ready? Are you ready to put on your little discovery monocle, right? Where's that from? Sherlock Holmes? The monocle? No. No. <laughs> Give me the right answer then. What is it? Monopoly. But Sherlock Holmes doesn't have like a little uh, eyeglass thing or whatever. What are those called? <laughs> I'll get it right next service. Don't worry. You guys refine me. Refine me. If nobody says Trey doesn't take criticism, you're wrong. Because no. All right. Here we go. Are we ready? Eyeglass or not, we're going to figure out what it says. Here's the two main trains of thought. The first one, which is probably the most popular, derives from Augustine, who is a profound theologian in the 4th, 5th century. His most popular work is Confessions. Uh, Augustine was a... like just running after Jesus and following God well, but he had a problem with lust and lovers and sex, and he talks all about it in his book, Confessions. It's literally his diary they published. It's pretty cool. It's very hard to read, but very cool. Anyways, his opinion was that um, the host of the party of a wedding like this size would be responsible for providing a wedding robe for each of them to wear. And so this man rejected what the host had freely offered, which was a disrespect and showed an unrepentant sin or heart for the host. So, uh, you know, like, imagine you go to a, a black tux wedding, right? You're, you're really close with the person, like, the family throwing in all that. And they know, like, you've got no money. You're like, I, I'm not, I can't rent this black tux. Like, I can't do it. They're like, no, 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 no problem. Like, we want you to go. We're going to have a suit laid out in your hotel room when you get there. That's sort of the, the extent to this. The host would know that. I'm inviting poor people, right? I'm inviting people off the street. Like, right? That, that's one... That's one take. Not saying it's wrong. I think the other one's better. The second and more uh, compelling is that uh, it's not necessarily that the host didn't. It's it's that the host didn't give him a fancy wedding robe um, to give him, but that anybody going to a wedding would be assumed to wear decent, clean white clothes, which everybody would have available regardless of status. So it's it's sort of like, hey, come to this wedding. Here's the dress code. Right, wear a nice shirt. Anybody can figure that one out, right? Like, even if you're wearing a shirt from Goodwill from the 90s or you're wearing, like, Gucci, right? Like, you, you can appear to be nice at a wedding even though your means might not make sense to the reality of what you have to wear. Does that make sense? Whereas a black tux, like, there's no way to cheapen that one, right? You're like, I got to have a tux or not. Hey, show up in whatever pants you got in a nice white, clean shirt. Anybody could do that at this time. Everybody had white clothes. It was a common form of dress. Even if you were poor, you just had to clean them or you had to go shower and all that. So if this, is the, if this is the truth, it's still the man's fault because even though he had accepted the invitation to this royal wedding, he did not first go home and clean himself up 
and, and act like he cared to be a part of this wedding. So either, either end, either whatever way you want to go, on whatever one you think is better, uh, it's uh, R.T. France says that someone who assumes the free offer uh, of salvation, which is the sense of this parable, has no obligations attached, meaning that he doesn't have to have a, a profession of faith in, in the way that he shows up to the wedding. I mean, he's not dressed for the wedding. And so it's the best way to describe it is it's someone who wants the gift without the desire to send a thank you card after. Right? It's this sense of like, mine, 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 not caring about anyone else. And in this culture, I mean, we, don't, we get disrespected today, but not, not like dishonored. Like, we don't really experience that. This is dishonoring to show up to a wedding and an immaculate wedding at best and wearing just like your normal smelly, like dirty, gross clothes and sitting at a table with everybody else who's all dressed up, who, or at least who's trying to wear their best, right? They, they understand the extent and the reality of this party. They're like, man, I've been so graciously invited to this wedding that I did not fit here, right? So I'm just going to do what I can to grab the right fork at the right time, right? Like, that's, that's your play. You're sitting there, and you're like watching everyone else, and you're like, I don't belong here, but praise God I'm here. What a great thing. This guy is like, I don't care. He shows up and almost abuses the, the wedding and dishonors the host and the, the, the man getting married and his wife. Like, he is dishonoring the entire wedding. Now, it's, it's, the contradiction to this gets dangerous because if we think about this wedding as an invitation to salvation, we start to get nervous about the idea that we have to do something in order to get it, right? Because that's a very anti-evangelical thought. Is, well, well, salvation is 100% grace by God, there's nothing I can do to earn it, meaning there's no work that I can accomplish that would put me in right standing with God. We believe that. So we believe here at Contrast Church. We're evangelical. That's what all evangelicals believe. Catholic Church is a little bit different. They sort of blend the two, but that's what we believe. So where, where there's this tension that we get into, right? And here's what I'll say. Here's, here's what we believe is that we believe that salvation, the, the gift of eternal life with Jesus is a free gift which is given us solely based on grace and gives us the freedom and opportunity to then live a life surrendered to Jesus. Nothing that is said in that sentence is a contradiction to this story. Is the gift to the wedding still free? 100%, right? It's the king's offer. Everything in the party is to be paid for. In fact, the king even says, friend, wear your clothes. You don't think the king could have been like, like, like if, if, if the guest was like, hey, I, I, don't, I literally don't have any clothes. I don't have nothing. Like, is there, like, you don't think you can be like, nah, sorry, man. Like, no, it was a disrespect because he showed up pushing aside what would be expected of him. And, and then he, he doesn't even answer the king when he's like, hey, what's going on here? He gives him a chance to explain himself. Ah, oh, I was rushing off work. I didn't have time to change, right? He doesn't say anything. He doesn't respond to this attempt at grace again. Does me accepting Jesus change my life and the act of surrender my entire self over to following him? Yes, right? Does then me accepting the free gift of this beautiful wedding and relationship sign me up to a life of bearing my cross, which might mean taking serious the wedding occasion and going home and taking a shower and changing clothes to not be lazy and disrespectful? Yes. So nothing that is, is occurring in this situation is, is in conflict with our understanding of salvation. But where it starts to get really, really, really tense is what, what implies us accepting and surrendering our lives over to Jesus and accepting this invitation. That's where the rub hits the road. And that's where this parable, I think, is going to convict a lot of us. 
and especially in, in, our, in our country, the apathetic consumer culturistic Christians. Because what R.T. France says is that entry to the kingdom of heaven might be free, but to continue in it carries conditions. Even though this man belongs to the new group of in invitees, he is one who produces no fruit. He's talking about fruit buying, like being there with the clothes. And so is no less liable to forfeit his new privilege than those who were excluded before him, who didn't even show up to the wedding, because God kicks him out of the wedding. As the parable of the sower has reminded us, the parable of the sower, if you don't know, is there's four seeds planted into the ground, like the beautiful soil, the road, the thorns, and the rocks, right? And the, the grass one, the, the ground, all the seeds sprout up, tons of fruit, it's amazing. The path... They never sink into the roots. It's shallow, and so birds eat up all the seed. Nothing grows. The, the thorns, is it grows with thorns and gets choked up by the thorns, and eventually it, that, the thorns are synonymous for idols, power, wealth. It chokes them, and then they lose, they lose their, their growth. And then the rocks is that they sprout up really quick at once, but then they have no foundation because the rocks cause like a, a, a tension of the soil. Three of those of the four all grow. Right? Only, only one of them of the three actually bears fruit. Two of them are get plucked out. One's the thorns, one's the rocks. And so what he's getting at here is he's talking about, like he said, the entry into the kingdom is free. But when we say, I want in the kingdom, you're saying, I don't want myself. When I say, I don't want myself, and I give my life over to Jesus, and he says, hey, pick up your cross, what does that imply? You might have to change your clothes. So for those of you who are like, uh, the, the, the funny illustration I brought from this was the idea of church clothes. If you grew up where you're like, you know, you had to wear khakis to church, or you had to wear a button collar, or, you know, I remember uh, my mom could probably remember this. When, when I, there was a church down the road where they got to wear like sports jerseys on Sunday, and I thought it was the coolest thing ever. Right? I was like, Mom, but they get to wear sports jerseys, right? Like, it's so cool. But, like, in some ways, it's like, hey, have some reverence, right? Have some reverence. Now, I'm not judging any of you right now for what you're wearing. We're a little more modern than that, but. There's this reality of if you go to a wedding, your, your goal is to not, it's not about you, right? Like you don't show up, ladies know this, I think, this is a rule, right? You don't wear white, right? Is that a thing? Why do you not wear white? You're not supposed to be prettier than the bride? Like, come on now, it's not, you're not competing. They invited you to their party. Don't show up and make it about you, right? Don't be like, oh, after the wedding, I have a question. Like, will you marry, you know, will you marry me, Cindy? And like, at the wedding, right? Classic. Don't do that, right? Don't make it about you. In the same way, following Jesus is saying, I don't want it about me. Tell me what to do. I'm giving my life over. I'm surrendering. And in the same way, I'm receiving this gift, right? I'm saying, here you go. Because that's how you get the gift is you surrender. You say, I'm not God anymore. Thanks for the gift. And that, that transfer is oftentimes in America just say, I'm going to take your gift. Thank you. You're going to keep my life if that's cool with you, right? And then what we do is we show the gift like a badge to get into places like, ah, yep, got it, here we go, right? And you're still living your life with whatever clothes you want. And God's like, that's not, do you see how you ruin the wedding when you do that? You have no fruit. And that's what Israel was doing. They were using their status of God choosing them, right, as a chosen nation, as a sense of, well, we're Jewish. We're going to get them to heaven. Like, we're good. I'm Jewish. I was born this way, right? Like, I'm good. And they were abusing their, their entitlement of, of how, their ethnicity, basically, their nation, to say, ah, God's good with us. And God's like, no, 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 no. Why do you think I created all these laws? Why do you think I have all these atonement processes? Why do you think I, I have to have sin atoned for? Because it's such a big deal. And so Jesus is drawing this out in this story, right? 
And, and, and in this, it's summing up all three parables. The first parable we talked about, we talked about two of them last time, two weeks ago. The first parable is that Israel got a special first invitation. And they were called, and they were God's chosen nation, but they neglected trust in God. And they say, yeah, yeah, I'll go and do the work, and then they don't go, right? And then God's like, who's better? The person who says, yeah, 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 and doesn't go? Or the person who says no, and then repents? The person who repents and go does the thing. So he's saying the first parable is about them not realizing they still have to go and follow what God has called them to. The second parable is them then trying to commandeer the kingdom, the, the kingdom of God, the chosen nation, right, the, the people of God for themselves. And so they persecute and kill God's messengers, telling them, hey, you're getting it wrong. They're like, no, no, this is our vineyard now. And God's like, what are you doing? This is not your vineyard, and you're killing my messengers, telling you it's not. And then this last one is they throw away the honor and the privilege they had of relationship with God, a wedding that they were invited to, that they said they'd be at, they throw it all away, and God says, it's fine. I'll have other people show up, people who want to be here, people who are so honored and delighted and blown away that they, they're honored to be here and probably sit in a chair at the table and are like, I've never been to anything in this immaculate in my life, and I have no idea which fork to use, right? Those are the people I want in my kingdom. That's what Jesus says. Those are the people, bad and good, right? Bad and good. Prostitutes and tax collectors and disabled people, and Jewish uncleanly people, right? All of these people. This is who's at the wedding. And so as we, as, we, as we close this out, as we sort of try to internalize the story, there's a lot going on here for Jewish people this time that Jesus is talking to, but also for us. And there's four categories of people that I want you to absorb here, and, and this is going to be how we identify this in the story for kind of our own application. The first is the prideful. Okay? And those are the religious leaders in the story. They're the prideful, legalistic Jesus deniers. Jesus is not who he says he is. He is not the Messiah. I'm not going to this wedding. I'm not going to be part of it. i got too much business to do. Right? i got too much work to do. Or I'm just going to kill whoever, has, whoever is telling me this wedding is happening. I'm just going to kill them. And so they are taken from the presence of God, and they are sent to hell. Right? They are sent off. They are not invited to the wedding. They have no relationship with God or intimacy with God. They're in a painful outer darkness where God is not. The second is the apathetic. Those who, are got the, who got the invitation but never showed up. I imagine that, and this is a little bit of speculation, but they're going out to the streets inviting everyone. I'm sure there are people who got an invitation that didn't go, right? There are people who got the invitation who have heard the gospel but never showed up. They have never met in relationship with God, right? These are people who have never experienced true intimacy and following Jesus. They've just said, I've got the badge, and I'll use it when I want. I'll wear a cross when I run track, and when I run fast, right? That's what I'll do. But you've never actually been in relationship. You've never abided. You've never understood following Jesus' commands and what that means in your life. You've never surrendered over. So you take the invitation handed to you by the servant, and you put it in your pocket, and you say, hey, everyone, look, I got invited to the royal wedding. Pretty cool, right? Oh, oh, no way did you go? No, no, but I have the invitation, so check it out. Got invited. I'm pretty cool, right? We use it as like a status, right? Oh, I'm a Christian. We use it as like this sense of saving ourselves or even in America as a cultural thing. And it's starting to become less and less popular as Christians um, live more and more in a post-secular world. But the third one is the half-repentant, those who are this guy. They get in, they get the invitation, they show up, and they are not wearing their wedding clothes. They're not wearing their best. Right? These are people who want to accept the gift of life but not the actual lifestyle. They want the gift of life. They don't want the lifestyle. They come, for the, they come for the free food, but they give none of themselves away to the culture and the ethics that are around them. They're sitting at the table, feasting, 
They're dirty hands. They're dirty clothes. Everyone around them, like, what are you doing? You're just, you're just, you're just gorging yourself, right, the whole time. You're, you're disrespecting the entire wedding. They don't actually believe in Jesus' sacrifice because if they did, they'd understand his gift. It leads to our own sacrifice. That is the salvation. That is the gospel. My life is not mine. It is yours. I can give it over to you. So the clothes are an understanding of this gospel. Am I, am I willing to understand the gospel and let it permeate my heart? And they disrespect the king. They disrespect his guests. Uh, and it shows with their clothes, they don't really want to be there. They just want the stuff from it, right? And these are pe- so these are people who take Jesus as a savior, but they give him back the cross. They say, hey, it was really cool that you like, died on the cross, but I'm going to give back mine. So can you take that one as well? Is that cool? All right, thank you. Like, that's what they think, right? Thanks for the gift, but I'm still Lord. And the fourth people, though, there's the fourth people who get it right. These are the delighted, who get the invitation. They show up, and they follow the king's command. You don't know which fork to use, but you're like, tell me what I need to do. I'm pumped to be here. I'm stoked. Tell me how to do this whole fancy wedding thing, right? Like, do I drink this drink now? Do I eat this? Tell me what I'll eat, whatever's in front of me, however much, however little. I'm just pumped to be here. I'll sit at the end of the table. I'll sit on the floor. Even the floor is nicer than any place I've ever been in. I'll sit in the corner. You want me to help serve the table? I'll do it, right? That's the type of people who are a part of this wedding that make it amazing, right? Who make it a celebration, who if you're getting married, you're like, I want those people at my wedding. They're a good time. They're, they're honored to be here. They're not like taking advantage of everything. They don't steal the mic, right? I, I want to, I, I love this. The best way to describe this is, is Psalm 119, and you don't have to turn there, but it's Psalm 119. I'm just going to read this. Just listen to how many words are used in terms of the word obeying or doing, and then, and then the Lord's commands. You're going to be shocked at how many times. It says, How blessed are those whose actions are blameless, who obey the law of the Lord. How blessed are those who observe his rules, who seek him with all of their heart, who moreover do no wrong but follow in his footsteps. You demand that your precepts be carefully kept. If only I were predisposed to keep your statutes, then I would not be ashamed if, all, if I were focused on all your commands. I would give you sincere thanks when I learn your just regulations, I will keep your statutes. Do not completely abandon me. How can a young person maintain a pure life? By guarding it according to your instructions. With all my heart, I seek you. Do not allow me to stray from your commands. In my heart, I store up your words so I might not sin against you. You deserve praise, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. One of my favorite verses in verse 16. I find delight in your statutes and I do not forget your instructions. Your delight in the law of God when you understand the heart of God in it, is delighting in the heart of God. And these people show up and they're like, tell me, what, tell me what you need. Tell me what I need to do. I'm pumped to be here. I'm honored. I'm shocked I'm here. Shocked I got an invite. Can't believe it, right? If you got invited to the royal wedding, you'd be like, maybe you're like, ah, not worth the flight, right? I don't know. But you'd be like, this is amazing. Royal wedding, pretty cool. Once in a lifetime opportunity. You would be like, tell me what I need to do, right? I don't want to blow it. So as we close... Uh, and I want to invite up the band as we transition to a time of formation here. I, I think focusing on this parable in light of our own lives, these four people, there's four sort of prayers, prayer applications that we can pull from this. The first group is, if you're in that first group, you're just like, I don't like Jesus. I don't want anything to do with him. You humble yourself. I mean, that's, that's the reality that you humble yourself. The second group is you accept the invitation, right? Like, you've, it's been given to you. You understand it. You know it. You're like, I want to show up and be ready to go. You accept the invitation. The third group is the apathetic ones. You surrender it all. You actually are like, I'm going to not just take the gift. I'm going to give my whole life over to follow Jesus, whatever it takes. 
I'll do it. I'm giving my whole life over. And the fourth one, you're in that camp, which is great. Delight and then repeat one through three, right? Like it's a continual process daily of sanctification. You'll humble yourself. You'll accept the invitation. You'll surrender it all. You'll remind yourself and then you delight in that. So as I close, and what I want us to sort of reflect on, we have a lot of different ways you can, you can be formed into the image of Christ. We have uh, the communion elements. So we have bread and cup here, gluten-free in the front and the back. You can partake in that as a reminder of the sacrifice. We also have giving as a form of worship. We believe in giving to the Lord. Uh, you also have to prayer. People in the back would love to pray for you. And then the last thing that you can reflect on, and what I'll give you, is would your current lifestyle disrespect Jesus' wedding? Or would it show your thanks and delight and gratefulness to even be invited? So we'll give you a little bit of time. And what we're going to do is we're going to jump right in because we've got two songs. And so we're going to encourage you there in the first song, though, to, to engage with any of that. You want to sit you want to process. You want to pray with your person beside you. You want to go to the back to pray. You want to whatever. We're going to give you that time. If you want to stand up and sing, you can. Um, but we're going to have another song after that we'll encourage everyone to stand up for. So use this song as, a, as just a space for you, whatever the Lord's leading you to engage with in any way you see fit. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit Contrast.Church.